We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, proudly Tasmanian and recorded at Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on what they're up to. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging and paying my respects to the Palawa people, the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered today, Lutruwita. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and stand for a future that profoundly respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language and history. My name is Neve Chapman and today I'm joined by a colleague that I very much look up to and respect, Associate Professor Shauna Gohl. Shauna is a researcher at the Menzies Institute for Medical Research and she was one of our most successful funding applicants last year, receiving $5 million from the National Health and Medical Research Council as a synergy grant. It's a really great time to catch up with Shauna because it's a year after you've gotten the grant, you've probably laid some foundations and... I'm really excited to talk because I think there's quite a lot of synergies in um, our research areas. So thanks for joining me today, Shauna. Thanks, Neve. Can we explain for people who may be unaware, what is a stroke? Sure. So a stroke is a type of cardiovascular disease, but it affects the brain. So um, there are two main types of stroke. There's ischemic stroke, and that's where blood supply is blocked to a part of the brain. And there's hemorrhagic stroke, and that's where there's bleeding into the brain. So depending on where the stroke happens, it can cause lots of different effects for people. So if it happens in a part of the brain that controls speech, people can have difficulty speaking. If it uh, affects a part of the brain that's responsible for motor motor function, then people might have difficulty walking or using their arms. Who experiences stroke? Is it always elderly people? Or I think I read a story the other day about a young child experiencing stroke. Yeah, so stroke can happen right across the lifespan. It is most common in older people, but we are also seeing an increase in the incidence of stroke in younger people. So people under the age of sort of 60 is is classified as younger in the field of stroke. Why does it mostly occur in older people? So it is a disease caused by um, preventable lifestyle risk factors on the whole. So things like blood pressure is the biggest risk factor, smoking, um, but things like diet and um, overweight and obesity also contribute to that. Most strokes are caused by atherosclerosis, so the process of your arteries building up plaques inside them they thicken and that process takes a long time so um, that's probably the main reason why it happens in older people that you have to accumulate a lot of the risk factors and that sort of burden of atherosclerosis before an event happens. It doesn't matter how long you've been exposed to these risk factors or you know if you are 60 and you smoked when you were 20 but you stopped is there a relationship between how long you've had unhealthy behaviors and your risk of stroke? Yeah that's a good question and they're probably is a relationship in terms of the length of time that you've been exposed to a risk factor. But there's a lot of evidence that, particularly using smoking as the example, people get benefit at any point in time, even very old people in their sort of, you know, sorry, very old people, you know. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Even people in their, you know, 70s and 80s who quit smoking get benefits within quite a short period of time in terms of reducing the incidence of stroke. So even though you do accumulate risk across your life course, taking action at any point, even if you think that it's, you know, too late, is not true. Certainly taking action in terms of lifestyle, but also certainly getting things like blood pressure managed through medications and that kind of thing. It's never too late, really. How would we go about identifying somebody who's at risk of a stroke or 
Yeah, let's focus on stroke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but I think it is important to say, you know, these diseases like heart attacks and stroke are very similar and a lot of the risk factors are similar and that's why if we can identify people with the major risk factors as you're talking about and manage them, then we'll reduce their risk of stroke but also heart attacks and, you know, cancer most likely as well because there's lots of shared risk factors across those diseases. So I think that is an important thing to recognise. In terms of how do we figure out who's at risk, you know, um, in a clinical setting, there's a lot of great tools that doctors should be using to figure out who has what risk factors and who should be treated in certain ways. But at an individual level, um, I think most people would be aware of the major things we should do to have a healthy lifestyle. Certainly, um, if you smoke, quitting smoking is a great thing to do. Um, monitoring your weight, um, having a healthy diet, you know, that's one of the major things. And we know that less than 10% of people meet fruit and vegetable recommendations across um, all different age groups. Um, and physical activity, as you said, you know, they're really important things. At an individual level, everybody can be striving to do to reduce their risk of stroke and other cardiovascular diseases. Is there something that at a certain age or time point we should be trying to get a medical risk assessment for how likely it is we'll have a stroke? Yeah, certainly. Um, and, uh, you know, recommendations do vary, but, as you know, in the sort of 40s to 50s is a great time. Probably 40s is for people to be having those conversations with their GP around what is my blood pressure, Should you know, getting my cholesterol checked um, and those kind of things so that it can be figured out whether you are in a higher risk category and some of that um, is a combination of those risk factors together is really important. I think that's a really important point that not only, like you could not be a smoker but have cholesterol that's slightly high and blood pressure that's slightly high and a high BMI and then that could be enough to tip you into the high risk factor category so you may perceive that you're not actually high risk but it's worth having that conversation with your doctor to make sure. When we talk about identifying who's at risk does this only relate to the primary prevention of a stroke which is before somebody's ever had a stroke event or and does that differ quite a lot from what we do when somebody already has a stroke? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, in general, the risk factors are quite similar. So obviously, yes, we want to identify people with risk factors, manage them and stop them from having a stroke. But once someone's had a stroke, then figuring out what caused their stroke and helping them to manage those risk factors is really important for making sure they don't have another stroke um, you know, in the time after that first one or another type of cardiovascular event. So when someone has a stroke, there'll be a lot of work done to try and figure out, you know, well, first of all, is it ischemic or hemorrhagic? And that will define the type of treatment people will get. And then in the, you know, the days and weeks after that, figuring out, you know, was it blood pressure? Did they have a heart condition that might have caused that? And that will really guide the secondary prevention strategies in terms of what medications should be people be taking, uh, what other investigations might they need if it is something like a heart condition that's caused that and then that will determine their treatment going forward. And do you, is it quite common for people to have a secondary event after a stroke? It's decreasing in how common it is. Um, up to five years the estimates range from about 10 to 20 percent of people will have another stroke. Most people after they've had a stroke will die of another cardiovascular disease, but that's common across all diseases. You know, it's, it's the most common cause of death. So uh, the risk is there and, it, and it's real and it should be managed. And that's one of the, the sort of prime goals for people after a, a stroke is having that ongoing management to help them not have another stroke and, and live, you know, healthy and, and full lives after that. 
Is the severity of your stroke linked to your age or your gender, or is there anything that's likely to tell us if, like, if you had a stroke, you look yeah. pretty young, fit, and healthy? Are you likely to bounce back, whereas somebody who's older and maybe less healthy, yeah. or do we not know? No, well, it does vary. And so, when someone has a stroke, neurologists will do some tests to figure out what parts of the brain have been affected, and we sort of call that, you know, stroke severity um, as a as a shortcut for talking about that. Um, and that will sort of sum up the 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 numbers of areas you have problems in. So, some people have very small strokes that affect a very particular part of the brain, and they might have almost no effects or some particular effects, say in speech or, you know, actually talking or understanding speech or that kind of thing. Whereas some people may have a really big stroke that affects a big part of their brain and they have a lot of different effects. Now, there are a lot of different things that influence how severe the stroke is. Older people do seem at greater risk of that. Women seem at greater risk of that. Um, and that is linked to age as well as older women are more likely to have, have strokes. Um, and so some of that may be about the older brain's ability to cope with what's happened um, and also the collateral blood supply that can sort of help to, if blood supply is caught off in one area, we have other blood vessels that can sort of help and try and maintain the blood flow or, or get it back into that area and older brains may be less able to do that than younger brains. Um, and there is evidence that other risk factors like people that smoke tend to have more severe strokes, people that um, have hypertension have more severe strokes. So managing those risk factors even if you don't prevent the stroke can stop it from being worse that's good to know um so stick with us for just a moment we're going to be talking about shauna's synergy grant projects you're listening to that's what i call science my name's neve chapman and i'm joined with our expert guest associate professor shauna gall Shauna, you got this really exciting grant, $5 million in research. That's like jackpot. <laughs> um, so can you tell me a little bit about what the grant was for and what you are hoping to achieve? Yeah, so it was really exciting and, you know, unexpected. Obviously, you put these things in and you hope you're going to get them, but you often don't. So it was extremely, extremely exciting. So essentially what it is, it's it's a group of um, researchers with lots of different expertise in stroke. So some people do big population-based studies to try and figure out who's going to have a stroke, what things are associated with stroke. Some people are more focused on the clinical side of things, so people that have had strokes looking at how well they're managed and what their outcomes are. And then there's some other people who are working more in interventions. So, um, you know, trying to design programs that might help people to reduce their risk of stroke or have a better outcome after stroke. So there's sort of three different themes within it. And we've got investigators from um, Tasmania, Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia, and also New Zealand. So a real uh, collaborative effort across the country. Is there a specific project that you're particularly excited about or have already gotten some traction with underway? Yeah, I mean, lots of it uh, we've sort of started off. I think the part of it I'm most keen to sort of get stuck into is uh, a trial of mobile phone app that's been developed by some colleagues at the Auckland University of Technology um, that is designed to help people input their risk factors and understand their own risk of stroke. And it provides some information about signs and symptoms of stroke, but also information about their own risk factors that can help to manage them. We're going to do a trial and figure out whether it actually helps people to identify and change their risk factors because a lot of apps are out there and not many have been tested. So is there any pilot data so far on this app about whether or not it's usable for the target audience? 
Yeah, so um, in New Zealand, they've done a small pilot uh, where they gave the app to people um, and they looked at their changes in risk factors and their change in stroke knowledge. Um, and there was about 50 people in that randomised pilot. And they did. there was some indication of changes in you know, the direction we would expect in that, in that trial. Um, and with every increasing year, more people have smartphones, including a lot of older people and, and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of potential there, but I think there's still a lot of questions about are these really useful long-term for this kind of intervention? Lots of us might be familiar with um, really good intentions around New Year's and downloading an app or, you know, we might watch a show and we're like, oh, I really am motivated to get healthy now. I have done this many times in my life. <laughs> and then I'll download an app and I may use that for weight tracking or finding new recipes. And I'm really engaged with it for like two, any, anywhere between, let's say, two weeks to eight weeks, depending on how good the app is. Mm. But then I slowly drop off and then it starts to send me notifications saying, hey, remember when you used to use me? And I go, shh. So then I turn off the notifications. <laughs> so how long is your trial going to run for? And do you think that that's appropriate timeline to capture the variation and usability of how much people use their apps over time? So we'll have uh, follow-up assessments um, at three, six and 12 months. And we'll be looking at... Uh, how much people use the app through the database that they can send their results that they enter into the app. So we can monitor usage of the app through that. The app does have push notifications, as you've said there, but of course people can turn it off. In conjunction with the actual study looking at the effectiveness of the app, we've also got a really detailed process evaluation going on. So that's taking more of a qualitative viewpoint where we'll do a lot of talking to people about how they used it, did they find it useful, how else could it be used. So um, will you measure any physical measures of people before they start using this app and then after they've been using it? Because you mentioned earlier that there is a positive change for blood pressure or diet um, and there's a lot to be said for measured data compared to self-report data in that instance. Definitely. And that's, uh, you know, the main objective of the, the study. So before people are randomised to whether they get the app or not, they will um, come in and have measurements of their blood pressure, weight, um, cholesterol levels, uh, and then we'll also do a lot of questionnaires about their health behaviours and that kind of thing. So we really want to have that objective data in there as well, as well as things like quality of life and, and these types of things, which are also important to assess. So yeah, that's a, that's a key thing of the study. So you'll do that before they're randomised. Then you said you're going to have usage data at three, six and 12 months. Will you also collect the physical measurements from people again? Yes. So we do the physical measurements at six months and then at the three and 12 month period, we'll do um, a follow-up, which is more questionnaire-based. Um, but we will also get people's consent to link to, um, in Australia, the Medicare system so we can see what health services they're using and also medications they're taking and, and a similar thing through New Zealand. So uh, we'll try to sort of maximise the, um, you know, really accurate measures we can get rather than relying on what people are going to tell us they do. Yeah, that's a good approach. So I have another question about when you randomise people. So that's essentially you're going to give some people the app and then other people you'll give them some type of app, but maybe not all of the features. Yeah, and as I was talking about it, I was like, oh, I shouldn't have given so much away. Um <laughs> So, 
It'll be promoted as not a study of an app. It'll be about how can we communicate people their risk factors. So okay. some people will be given an app. Some people will be given a, another way of seeing that information, which is not an app. That's really interesting. So could that be like a research assistant as a proxy healthcare worker or yeah. a an, an allied health professional? Yeah, well, we want to keep it simple and we want to keep it like it would appear in real life. So it'll be more like a printout or if they receive it by email, which is sort of we want to do a lot of it hands-off so it would replicate the experience of people using the app in the real world. So we'll take the measurements of people's risk factors and in both groups they'll get a very similar printout of what their information is, um, providing that same understanding of their risk factors. And then the people that can use the app can enter that information to get the risk and so on within the app. That's really interesting. I think it's worth talking about the process of randomization because there's a lot of data to suggest that when people take part in medical research, even though we explain that it's randomized, they're still a bit gutted that they're not in the intervention group. Yeah. But actually, for this type of a study, that sounds really exciting because potentially you could find that the lower resource version is actually really effective. <laughs> <laughs> and then it'd be like, oh, cool, we just need to email people <laughs> some information. Yeah. Um, and then, so obviously as well, when you randomize people, I would imagine you're not going to go, oh, well, all these people have worst risk factors at baseline their blood pressure is higher their cholesterol is higher let's put all of them in the intervention <laughs> group because they have more to reduce by yeah. that's not how you're going to do it no of course <laughs> not so the <laughs> you know the idea of randomizing is that uh, you end up with two groups who should look completely similar except for the intervention you're giving them um, and in that way we control for what we talk about is confounding in epidemiology where other things that influence your outcome and the group you're assigned to can change the outcome. So when people are randomised, it should get rid of that and we can talk about a causal association in that type of study. Excellent. Stay with us. For just a moment, we're going to be talking about what all of this means for the bigger picture. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. I've been talking with Associate Professor Shauna Gall. As a society, with something that's preventable like stroke, what can we do about it? What would you like to see in an ideal world, yeah. world peace and all of that <laughs> kind of stuff? When everything's on the, the table, what would you like to see us as a community working on towards stroke? Yeah, and I think it's a really good question. And I guess when we're talking about prevention of diseases, it's never just one thing, like it's lots of things. And we've talked about all those risk factors. You know, I do a lot of work in um, tobacco control and obviously smoking is a huge problem for lots of different health conditions, but also causes, you know, it's very expensive. It can cause people financial hardship and those kind of things. Um, so putting lots of money into things we know work to reduce smoking uptake and increase smoking cessation is really important. Um there's also a lot of things that governments can do more broadly if we're talking about at a population level that could be really important for prevention of stroke but also prevention of, of other diseases. So um, things around food reformulation, for example, to decrease the amount of salt in processed foods. It's very difficult because it's, uh, you know, it's governments interacting with industry and trying to uh, help industry to reformulate the foods in a way that has minimal effects on their sales and all these kind of things. Bigger picture things as well, you know, uh, a sugar tax or a soft drink tax are things that people talk about 
more and more often. And again, that's something that has emerging evidence as being really effective. But these types of high-level um, interventions at a government level are really hard and it takes quite gutsy governments to do these things that can upset big industries that are very powerful. That's very true. And I wonder, do you think that because behaviours become entrenched throughout our life course, how long we're exposed to them, when do you think might be the best time to to support individuals or rally support around a person to either avoid the uptake of negative health behaviours or um, to intervene to stop? Yeah, no, that's a that's a good point. And particularly in tobacco control, we, we get a lot of arguments about this nanny state idea that, you know, the government's always telling us we can do this and we can't do that. And, you know, it, it does upset people and, you know, people feel they should have a choice to do things. Um, in terms of when we should intervene, so I guess one of the other studies I work on is one that's followed people since they were children and is looking at, you know, how important is childhood to the people's cardiovascular health as they sort of age into their 30s, 40s and 50s. And um, what happens in childhood is important and it can lay the foundation for what happens later on. But it isn't the whole story. And often we do see, I think, as you mentioned before, that it can be what's happening later on that's more important what's happening in childhood. But certainly it's it's sort of an uphill battle if you're trying to change a lifetime of of poor behaviour. So I think that... um, doing what we can within families and schools to help people have the tools to live the healthiest lives they can in terms of, you know, not taking up smoking or if parents smoke, quitting, um, because that, we know that's very strongly associated with whether your, whether your kids will take up smoking. I think, unfortunately, it is something that has to start early but has to also continue right across the life course. So there's, there is no easy fix. I think that was a really interesting point. So you've mentioned there that you've done work on childhood and what's something that I've always wondered as a researcher when we talk about childhood determinants of, of health um, and we track through the life course, aren't you just more likely to be overweight, low socioeconomic status, like have less resource to be healthy from childhood and that would track through to your adulthood? Do we see that that those people that change um they, they then mitigate their risk or is it that people are likely to stay at the same point and it just tracks across yeah, the well, age ranges? And it depends what risk factor you're looking at and what you're kind of doing. But we have done work specifically looking at socioeconomic status and this idea of social mobility in terms of um, – we've done a few different ways, but looking at, for example, your parents' level of education, the level of education that you have and – your its association with your health behaviours as an adult. And what we see is that, um, you know, a lot of people are socially mobile, particularly in Australia. You know, um, we don't have as many barriers to achieving more education or, or getting higher status jobs that you might have in other countries. So we do see that a lot of people move up from where they were from their parents' level. And we do find that in general, when you move up, you adopt the health behaviours of the group you move to. And we can see that across things. And though, at, But there are people who stay in that same level and they do tend to have the higher burden of those risk factors, presumably because they're still in that same environment and the people around them are having those, those sorts of similar health behaviours. Um, so when it comes to that sort of thing, you know, mobility does seem important. And we do see that across some other risk factors as well. Um, and... That's kind of a good news story because it's that you know what happens in childhood is important, but it's not it's not the whole story. And that uh, as we were sort of saying before, it's never too late to yeah. make a change, you know, do something positive because it will have positive health impact. And you have control over it. Yeah, yeah. Is there any evidence of successful intervention in childhood to actually 
get in there early because you know that this is probably the time to intervene to have positive effects on not just that child for their life course but the whole family yeah and so um you know I've not done this sort of work directly but um I mean there's some really surprising research around tiny amounts of education given to children particularly in really impoverished places like a few months or a couple of years not whole schooling and the impact that that has on their ongoing health is just phenomenal um so that's one example in terms of actual cardiovascular disease um we do quite a lot of work with colleagues in finland here at um at the university of tasmania and they've done a study called the strip study can't remember exactly what the words stand for but um they were involved in a study from when people were very young i'm thinking it's early infancy up until they were the age 18 and basically uh early on it was a family-based intervention and they would do assessments on them, uh, then they would come in and they'd have a chat to like a nutritionist type person and they'd talk about their diet and what the family was eating and what else they could kind of be doing to make things healthier. And they did that every year for like 18 years. I think it was every year, but anyway, very regularly. And they showed that that worked, that that had long-term benefits for um, these people's health. So the people were randomised to it. Um, And that's, you know... That's pretty amazing. But again, it shows that it can't be one-off. It has to be ongoing and sustained. And it's based in measurements and, you know, evaluation of what's going on and talking to people about it. So a bit of a philosophical question for you. Mm. If it's mostly um, individual health behaviours that are causing it and maybe people don't want help from the state because they have a right to choose those health behaviours, some people might have a view that, well... It's their fault that this is happening to them if they have a stroke or heart disease. And it's usually quite costly to have these interventions, particularly if they're sustainable and frequent. Mm. Should the state pay for those kind of things? What are the economic benefits of paying for such a program? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think with that particular program, you know, whether they've done a cost-effectiveness analysis, but often they come out in front, these types of interventions. Um, you know, around the sort of individual choice and the fact that, you know, these people are causing this to happen, you know, I think the it's very complex as to why people engage in these types of behaviours and it's not all free choice. You know, we just have to take a more holistic approach and, and do what we can at different, you know, levels of, of intervention to try and help those people make healthy behaviours. And if they want to change, for example, smoking, you know, most smokers don't want to smoke. Most people try to quit within a 12-month period. You know, we have to have the supports there to help those people uh, when they're ready to do that. I'm going to try and finish on an optimistic note. What are you most excited or hopeful about with your work and the direction your work's taking you? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the Synergy Grant's an amazing opportunity to do a lot of work particularly focused on stroke prevention. So there's been work in cardiovascular prevention before, but focusing specifically on stroke is really unique sort of worldwide. So that's really exciting. Awesome. Thanks so much, Shauna. So my name's Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank expert guest, Associate Professor Shauna Gold. If you enjoyed the show, you can keep up to date on social media. Just search That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz. And do give us a like, review or subscribe either on social media or wherever you get your podcast because it will really help us spread the good word of science. Thanks and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. 
Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.